Hey there, Grecian listeners, Phil Helene's extraordinaires. This is not your usual host, Ryan Stitch. My name is Dr. Radford, and this lovely lady sitting to my right. I am Dr. Greenfield. Together we are the Partial Historians. We are lucky enough to introduce the history of ancient Greece to you today, and if you are enjoying tracing the history of ancient Greece, you may also enjoy checking out Rome Story. It's pretty rock and roll. (laughs) (laughs) The Partial Historians is a podcast that's currently tracing the history of Rome from the founding of the city. (laughs) Glorious times. So in a similar vein to the history of ancient Greece, we're exploring the history of Rome. So... If that might take your fancy, mm. perchance, yeah. I recommend you check out The Partial Historians. Indeed. We are on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at P underscore historians and also at partialhistorians.com. We hope to see you there. Enjoy the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 41, The End of an Era. At the turn of the decade of the 470s BC, Cimon achieved what would be the most brilliant victory of his entire career. Up until this point, he had been busy in the northern waters of the Aegean. But it was now time for the Greek fleet to sail southwards and strike a blow against Persian power in the seas between Rhodes and Cyprus. And so in 469 BC, Cimon delivered both the Greek and native coastal towns of Caria from Persian rule and forced the Lycian communities to join the Delian League. Then, two significant battles took place near the Eurymedon River in the region of Pamphylia on the southern coast of Asia Minor one on the sea, and one on land. There, the Persians had anchored their fleet of 200 ships, while awaiting an arrival of 80 Phoenician ships sailing north from Cyprus. Some scholars suggest that this Persian buildup at Cyprus and southern Asia Minor was their first concerted attempt to counter the activity of the Greeks since their failed second invasion of Greece. It is possible, though we aren't told about it, since the infamous gossiper Herodotus' account has ended that there was internal strife within the Persian Empire, which would have contributed to the length of time it took to launch this campaign. It's also possible that Xerxes was just getting older. He would have been in his late 50s at this point, and so he decided that those pesky Greeks out west weren't worth the trouble any longer, and instead focused on his affairs in the east. Whatever the reason, he had a change of mind at this point, and it seems that the Persians were gathering their forces with the intent to move westward along the southern coast of Asia Minor to capture each city until eventually the Persian fleet could operate in Ionia once again. The nature of naval warfare in the ancient world, depended as it was on large teams of rowers, meant that ships would have to make landfall every few days to resupply with food and water. This severely limited the range of an ancient fleet and essentially meant that navies could only operate in the vicinity of secure naval bases. And so, if the Persians wished to challenge the Athenians for naval control of the Aegean again, first they would have to secure ports in Ionia. Thucydides gives only the barest of details for this battle, and so the most detailed account belongs to Plutarch. When Cimon learned of the Persian fleet's location in Aspendos, near the mouth of the Eurymedon River, he was at Cnidus in Caria, with a fleet of 200 triremes. It is highly likely that Cimon had assembled this force because the Athenians had some warning of a forthcoming Persian campaign to resubjugate the Asiatic Greeks. Certainly, no other league business would have required such a great force. And so, Cimon may have been waiting in Caria because he expected the Persians to march straight into Ionia, along the royal road from Sardis. Anyways, he quickly sailed with his ships eastward along the coast of Asia Minor 
to Phaselis in Pamphylia in order to block the Persians from moving westward. He was refused admittance, though, by the people of Phaselis, and so he began to ravage their lands until they relented. And thanks to the mediation of a Chian contingent of his fleet, they agreed to join the League. They were to contribute troops to the expedition and forced to pay talents as Phoros. By capturing Phaselis, the furthest east Greek city in Asia Minor, Chimon effectively blocked a Persian naval campaign before it had even begun, denying them the naval base that they would need to control operations as they moved westward. And so from there, Chimon then decided to preemptively attack the Persian forces at the mouth of the Eurymedon River before their reinforcements arrived. The Persian fleet, though, eager to avoid battle, retreated inwards into the river itself. However, when Chimon pursued after them, he managed to coax them into a light skirmish. Although the Persians had superior numbers, Chimon quickly breached the Persian battle line, forcing them to retreat to the riverbank, where the Persian sailors disembarked and sought sanctuary with the army waiting nearby. Chimon landed the fleet and proceeded to attack with his marines. Just like at Mycale, the Persians initially held the assault, but the hoplites proved superior and routed the army. Fleeing back to their camp, the Persians were then captured by the victorious Greeks. Thucydides says that the 200 beached Persian ships were then destroyed by fire, also just like at Mycale. There were no estimates given by the ancient sources for casualties for either side, though. Then, Plutarch states that following this double victory on sea and land, quote, like a powerful athlete who had brought down two contests in one day, Chimon still went on competing with his own victories, end quote. And so Chimon and the Greek hoplites quickly loaded up onto their ships and surprised the 80 Phoenician ships. Taking them by surprise, he captured or destroyed the entire fleet. This victory sealed the acquisition of southern Asia Minor, from Caria to Pamphylia, for the Delian League. Although Plutarch exaggerates the success of Eurymedon by saying that it surpassed that of both Salamis and Plataea, this double land and sea victory was a decisive blow to the Persian position in the Aegean, basically forcing them to pull out altogether and totally destroying, for the foreseeable future, any Persian ambitions of regaining the Asiatic Greeks or the control of the Aegean. For the majority of the next two decades, Greek ships were able to sail the coasts of Asia Minor without impunity. It was this success which probably affected the attitude of the Allies towards the Delian League more than any other event. The majority would have felt that the primary purpose of the League, that being the liberation of the Greeks from Persia, had been achieved and consequently were reluctant to continue paying Phoros or supplying ships for future campaigns. The Athenians, however, were determined that the Allies should continue with their previously agreed-upon obligations, and this dynamic ultimately led to them exercising a harsher and increasingly more imperialistic control over their allies. Greek success at Eurymedon would mark a major change in foreign policy for the Athenians. Chimon realized that they now had the opportunity to exploit the League for their own benefit, and thus he began the conversion of the Delian League into the Athenian Empire. Plutarch reports that as the ship supplying allies became more unwilling to serve on campaigns, which Athens still insisted on conducting, Chimon encouraged the allies to take their ease and allowed them to supply either Phoros or empty ships. While the allies grew soft from easy living, Chimon filled the empty ships with Athenian sailors and made them battle-hardened. Plutarch writes that this policy brought these results. Quote, the Greeks, who did not take part in military campaigns, became accustomed to fear and to flatter men, who were continuously at sea, who always had weapons at hand, and who were thriving on constant training. And so, without realizing it, they became tributaries and slaves instead of allies. End quote. Chimon's role in this was crucial and his successful pursuit of Athenian imperial interests at the expense of the Allies reflects highly on his ability to perceive and act upon policies that were advantageous to Athens. However, there was one fatal flaw in his policy. The cornerstone of his foreign policy was peace with Sparta, but he failed to appreciate the fear and resentment that existed amongst the Spartans towards the Athenians. Now that the Persian threat to Greece appeared to be over, and the Athenians' power was growing through the suppression of their allies, 
so too did the Spartans' fear continue to grow. Sparta, being a militaristic state, usually responded to all threats, real or imaginary, with aggression. The more eagerly that Cimon pursued his policy of subjugating the allies to bolster Athenian power, the likelihood of Spartan aggression increased. Cimon, blinded by his admiration of and trust in Sparta, lacked the foresight to see this. In 468 BC, the great statesman, Aristides, died at the age of 62. Some sources say he died peacefully at Athens, while others say it was during a journey to the Black Sea region whilst on public business. Given that Aristides was responsible for organizing the financial contributions of each league member, this trip may have been connected with the expansion of the league, and thus he would have went to determine what the tax rate should be for some new league members. He was buried at Thaleron, and the city of Athens footed the bill as he didn't leave behind any money. To the very end, he stayed true to his character. Even though Themistocles had been his rival his entire life, resulting in his ostracism, when Themistocles was being slandered throughout the city, Plutarch reports that Aristides alone, out of all of the conservative politicians, refused to say anything negative about the man, nor did he take any advantage of his archenemy's misfortune. He held no grudges. He was a staunch conservative who dedicated his life to the Athenian state and doing what was right. Plutarch writes that Aristides and Cimon opposed Themistocles whenever he tried to advance the democracy beyond its prescribed limits. During the years after Themistocles' fall from grace, Cimon and Aristides held Athenian power in their hands. As Cimon was continuously re-elected as one of the ten strategoi, Aristides remained the moral control of the ecclesia and occupied himself with the financial affairs of the Delian League. But with Themistocles now gone and Aristides' death, without a doubt, Cimon was the most influential and revered politician in Athens. In fact, his prestige was at an all-time high. From his many military exploits and money gained through the Delian League, Cimon funded many construction projects throughout Athens. These projects were greatly needed in order to rebuild Athens after its destruction by the Persians. He ordered the expansion of the walls around the Acropolis and Athens, and the construction of public roads, public gardens, and many political buildings. In particular, following his great victory at the Eurymedon, Cimon used the booty that he had won to build a new south wall to the Acropolis and to dedicate at Delphi a bronze palm tree carrying a statue of Athena. Furthermore, According to Plutarch, that same year, in 468 BC, Cimon and the other strategoi acted as judges at the Greater Dionysia, although the usual custom had judges drawn by lot. As an aside, they voted for Sophocles over Aeschylus, the reigning master of Athenian drama, marking the ascendancy of the career of Athens' second great playwright. We will discuss both of these men and their works in greater length in a future episode. Anyways, Although Cimon was at the pinnacle of his popularity, the imperial advancement that Athens was making and increased hostilities with Sparta would soon bring that to a crashing halt. As we discussed last episode, Themistocles had instigated an anti-Spartan coalition of Argos, Elis, and Arcadia, which included Tegea and Mantinea. Argos had recovered somewhat from its humiliating defeat a few decades earlier as most of the small towns in the Argolid were brought back to their control, including Tyrants, Ornea, and Hesei. It's hard to place exactly, when chronologically, but at some point around 468 BC, a battle occurred around Tegea, who was supported by the forces of the anti-Spartan coalition. The Spartans managed to win, but suffered many casualties in the process. An epitaph of the fallen warriors told how, quote, their bravery hindered the smoke of blazing Tegea from mounting to the sky. End quote. It was most likely because of this battle near Tegea that Diodorus states that the Spartans could not help their ally, Mycenae, which was being attacked by Argos, as they were involved in private wars. The Argives managed to destroy the ancient city of Mycenae. Its fortifications were razed, its inhabitants were expelled and the Macedonian king Alexander received the displaced population. The fact that Sparta couldn't help their allies clearly shows that the other members of the coalition were stretching Spartan forces thin 
with continual attacks, thus pinning them down in defense of their homeland. The Battle of Depea, waged by all of the Arcadians, with the exception of Mantinea, forced the Spartans to fight in a severely depleted phalanx. The Spartans thus sought help from the other Peloponnesian allies, and they somehow managed to win their second costly battle in the Peloponnese, against all odds. This also explains why the Spartan hawks weren't pressing for an attack against Athens' growing imperialism in the years following the Battle of the Eurymedon River. But by 466 BC, the Spartans had gained a breathing space from their troubles in the Peloponnese and turned their attention once again to international Greek politics. First up on the docket was revenge against Themistocles, who orchestrated all this trouble in the first place. And so, in 466 BC, the Spartans produced evidence, or at least they claimed, that Themistocles had in fact intrigued with Pausanias and the Persians. The Spartans knew, however, that it would be hard to convince the Athenians that their great war hero, although out of favor at the time, had indulged in Medism. For such a charge to be successful, it would need the right opportunity and support from the highest quarters in Athens. Well, following his great victory at Eurymedon, Cimon was at the peak of his career. And so, the Spartans were able to present their evidence, knowing full well that Cimon, their proxenos and the political enemy of Themistocles, was willing to destroy his rival's career and would use his dominant influence to back the charge of Medism. The time lapse between the death of Pausanias, their first accusation of Themistocles' involvement, and then the miraculous appearance of said evidence creates suspicions that this supposed evidence was manufactured, especially as the Spartans were so desperate to remove Themistocles and his troublesome influence from Peloponnesian politics. Regardless, the Athenians were persuaded by Cimon's faction this time, and a bounty was placed on his head in order to bring him back to Athens for trial. Themistocles, though, knew that his political enemies would ensure that a verdict of guilty was passed, and thus he was forced to flee eastward to the court of the Persian king. He sought protection with his former enemy, because, ironically, there was nowhere else in Greece that would offer him sanctuary, from both Athenian and Spartan agents. This act naturally confirmed his enemy's accusations, and so he was tried and convicted of Medism in abstentia, and was declared a traitor, and his property was confiscated. Themistocles' career in Greek politics came to an end, though as we will see, he left a powerful legacy to his democratic successors, Ephialtes and Pericles. After the military blunders in Greece, Xerxes had returned to Persia and oversaw the completion of the many construction projects left unfinished by his father at Susa and Persepolis. He oversaw the building of the Gate of All Nations and the Hall of a Hundred Columns at Persepolis, which are the largest and most imposing structures of the palace. He also oversaw the completion of the Apadana, the Takara, and the Treasury, all started by Darius, as well as having his own palace built, which was twice the size of his father's. His taste in architecture was similar to that of Darius, though on an even more gigantic scale. He also maintained the royal road, built by his father, and completed the Susa Gate, and built a palace at Susa. Basically, because there was nothing left to conquer, and Herodotus ended his account at Sestos, we don't really know any specifics about what happened in the last 15 years of Xerxes' rule. Once again, scholars are tempted to fill in the blanks with the standard consolidation, administration, and undocumented eastern campaigns. But we don't really know what was going on. But in August of 465 BC, Xerxes was assassinated by a eunuch named Aspimitris at the behest of Artabanus, the commander of his royal bodyguard and the most powerful official in the Persian court. Although he bore the same name as the famed uncle of Xerxes, this Artabanus was an entirely different person, and his rise to prominence was due to his popularity in the religious quarters of the court and harem intrigues. He put his seven sons in key positions and developed a plan to dethrone the Achaemenids. Greek sources give contradicting accounts of events. According to Stesius, Artabanus then accused the crown prince Darius, Xerxes' eldest son, of the murder and persuaded another of Xerxes' sons, Artaxerxes, to avenge the patricide by killing his brother. But according to Aristotle and his politics, Artabanus killed the son Darius first and then killed the father Xerxes. Regardless, 
After Artaxerxes discovered the plot, he executed Artabanus and his seven sons. Participating in these intrigues was the general and satrap of Babylon, named Megabizus, whose wife was Ametus, a daughter of Xerxes. It's not entirely clear why he chose to turn on his wife's family, but his decision to switch sides and uncover the plot saved the Achaemenids from losing their control of the Persian throne. As a reward, he was appointed a satrap of Syria. As a result, Artaxerxes was firmly the new king of Persia, ruling from 465 to 424 BC. And this was the situation when Themistocles arrived at the royal court, sometime later that year. One of his acquaintances in Asia Minor, who was also an acquaintance with Artaxerxes, devised a plan to safely transport Themistocles to the Persian king in a type of covered wagon that the king's concubines usually traveled in. Plutarch reports that the two had a face-to-face meeting in which he appealed to the new Persian king and asked for a year's grace to learn the Persian language and customs, after which he would serve the king dutifully in whatever capacity that he saw fit. And so, liking this idea, Artaxerxes granted him his year of grace. He was elated that such a dangerous and illustrious foe had come to serve him. At this point, Themistocles' wife and children were extricated from Athens by personal friends and joined him in exile. During the year, Artaxerxes grew so impressed with Themistocles. Plutarch writes that, quote, He attained very high consideration there, such as no Hellene has ever possessed before or since. The honors he enjoyed were far beyond those paid to other foreigners. He actually took part in the king's hunts and in his household matters, end quote. And so the next year, in 464 BC, after his year of grace to learn the Persian language and customs, he appointed Themistocles to be satrap of Magnesia, a city on the Meander River in Asia Minor. There, Themistocles lived out the rest of his life, having switched sides to the enemy, who he fought so vigorously against, not even 20 years earlier. He probably was never guilty of betraying his country, but he aggravated the wrong people. Perhaps the Spartans trumped up the evidence and the Athenian people played right into it, at the behest of the pro-Spartan Chimon. But unfortunately, we will never know. Meanwhile, back at Greece, there was a second event that the Spartans became involved in. In 465 BC, Athens and the island of Thassos in the northern Aegean quarreled over the possession of the gold and silver mines of Mount Pangaean in Thrace which sat opposite of Thassos. It's clear that both the trading posts and the mine belonged to Thassos, and Athens' demand for possession of them was blatantly self-seeking and imperialistic. This situation was further exacerbated by Athens' attempt to establish a colony, called Henia Hodoi, or the Nine Roads, on the Strymon River, which later would be known as Amphipolis. With 10,000 settlers to lay claim to the mines and timber that Thassos controlled, This commercial greed by the Athenians caused the Thassians to feel that they had no other alternative but to revolt. In response, Chimon led the fleet to punish the Thassians and put down the revolt. They won a sea battle, as the Thassian fleet was no match for that of the Delian League, and the Athenians placed the city under siege. However, the Thassians were tough to put down, and the siege would last for two years. Thucydides mentions that before the Thassians launched the rebellion, they went first to the Spartans and asked them that if they were to rebel against the Athenians, would they invade Attica too? And the Spartan e-force said that they would. The Spartan hawks naturally would have found the situation disturbing. However, a major earthquake hit the Peloponnese in the spring of 464 BC and prevented their aid from happening. And so, just as the Spartans were about to reassert their importance in Greek affairs, Problems in the Peloponnese forced them yet again into a policy of isolation. Modern seismologists have deduced that it likely occurred due to vertical movement on a fault by the Tigetus Mountains and may have had a magnitude approaching 7.5. However, it is difficult to judge the exact epicenter and magnitude of the earthquake due to the unreliability of the sources, those being Strabo, Pausanias, Plutarch, and Thucydides. But according to them, it was the most devastating earthquake in the history of Sparta. Plutarch records that it leveled homes and destroyed entire villages, and that only five houses were left standing. 
Historical sources suggest that the death toll may have been as high as 20,000, although modern scholars suggest that this figure is likely an exaggeration. They question whether such a large death toll could have happened in a city which at that time was relatively small and spread out, with most buildings being one floor and constructed from wood or sun-baked brick. Buildings such as these would be unlikely to result in the large casualty figures that the ancient sources suggest. Regardless of possible hyperbole, it was serious enough that it encouraged a great Helot rebellion of those in the Eurotis Valley and Mycenae, along with a few communities of the Perioikoi. It was only the quick thinking of their king, Archidamus II, that saved Sparta from ultimate destruction. His drawing up of the surviving Spartans into a battle position saved the Spartans from the Helots who had descended upon a wrecked city. The Spartans defeated the Helots in battle, but they struggled to put the revolt down as the Helots had fled to Mount Ithome and fortified their position. The Helots were able to hold out for several years, forcing the Spartans to ask for aid from their Peloponnesian allies. Meanwhile, the siege of Thassos was still raging on. Two anecdotes were recorded during this siege. One was that the Thassians decreed that anyone who proposed surrender to the Athenians would be put to death, and another was that the Thassian women cut their hair short to provide rope-making material during a desperate shortage. This determined Thassian resistance was only further emboldened by the fact that the Athenian forces were having troubles at their new colony. Although they were initially successful against the Thracian Adonians at Henia Hodoi, they decided to continue advancing into the interior of Thrace, where they were defeated by another tribe of the Thracian Adonians at Gerbescus. They rightfully had regarded the settlement of Enia Hodoi as an act of Athenian hostility, and so the colony was then destroyed. According to Pausanias, this marked the beginning of the democratic custom of burying together, without the distinction of family or rank, of all who died in war for Athens, as well as the start of a ritual for public funerals and logoi epitaphioi, or funeral orations. While the Thassian siege was still ongoing, and we're not entirely sure which year it took place, but Cimon took the opportunity to return to the Chersonese to complete the expulsion of the remaining Persian forces left in Europe. They either still held or had retaken some parts of the Chersonese with the help of native Thracians. It's not entirely clear, to be honest. Anyways, Cimon sailed to the Chersonese with just four triremes, but managed to capture 13 Persian ships, and then proceeded to drive them off the peninsula. He then turned the Chersonese over to the Athenians for colonization. When Thassos finally surrendered in 463 BC, they were given the same treatment as Naxos, meaning the terms imposed were very harsh. Their walls were torn down, their ships were seized, and they were henceforth forced to pay cash payments as Phoros, an obligation that would be all the more burdensome, since Athens also took complete control over its mines in Thrace. They also placed an indemnity, forcing Thassus to pay the entire cost of the fighting. This was a unique quarrel, because it had nothing to do with the League, but instead for Athens' own advantage economically, and it rubbed some people the wrong way. No doubt a majority now felt oppressed by Athenian rule. However, no doubt they knew that League-wide revolt in the 460s BC was not a wise move, as Athens was free to suppress them with ease. And so they would have to bide their time and wait for the ideal opportunity. The Athenians' refusal to permit states to remain aloof from the Delian League, combined with the gradual conversion of tribute payments from ships to money, sent an increasingly clear message that Athens ruled the sea and was converting the naval alliance into an Athenian empire. Although the Athenian leaders seem to have been largely of one mind about the merits of naval imperialism, however, they were divided about Athens' proper relationship to Sparta. These conflicts, moreover, were tied to disagreements about the further democratization of Athenian political life. Although sources for Athenian politics during these decades are sparse, some underlying fault lines are discernible. Themistocles had encouraged competition with Sparta and the continued development towards a more radical democracy, whereas Cimon favored Sparta and supported the moderate democratic constitution of Cleisthenes. In the 470s BC, Constitutional issues were of much less importance than foreign policy in Athenian politics, and thus Themistocles' growing unpopularity in foreign affairs gave him little scope to be successful in domestic policy. 
having rid themselves of a keen and colorful politician in Themistocles. The Athenians were left with the genial and gentlemanly Cimon. Themistocles and Cimon were opposites in every way. Slow, where Themistocles had been quick, and courteous, where Themistocles had been insolent. Cimon was no intellectual, but he had a flair for generalship. With the Persian threat having been abated, for now at least, constitutional change became a major issue in the mid to late 460s BC, forcing Cimon into the role of the champion of a moderate democracy. But just as there was a flaw in his foreign policy with Sparta, there too was a fatal flaw in Cimon's domestic policy. His dynamic foreign policy led to success against the Persians and to Athens' growing imperialism over the Delian League allies. But this success was achieved through the naval fighting abilities of the Thetes, who were bound to demand recognition of this by a substantial increase in their political power, much like the hoplite class did with Solon's and Cleisthenes' reforms. In fact, Greek history has shown that political power would lay with the class best able to defend the state at that given point in time. And so their desire for a more radical democratic reform was a consequence of Cimon's actions. He either lacked the vital quality of foresight or hoped that a combination of personal generosity and a continued successful foreign policy would dissuade the people from seeking a change in the constitution. Well, if it was the former, it would only be a matter of time until the people demanded more power in their government. And if it was the latter, because of his military reputation, he was able to command a good deal of respect in the Athenian assembly, while an obscure figure, whose purpose was to break with Sparta and further the growth of democracy, was waiting in the wings, ready to pounce at Cimon's first misstep. This obscure character went by the name of Iphialtes. We aren't sure on his lineage or much about his earlier life. Unlike the other politicians during this period, Plutarch did not write a life about him. But he probably was an upper-class Athenian and not a poor man, as reported in later sources. He first appeared on the historical record as a strategos in the mid-460s BC. Over time, he eventually filled the void that Themistocles had left behind as the de facto leader of the Hawk faction. For some years, Ephialtes and his democratic associates started making attacks on individual members of the venerable and aristocratic council of the Areopagus, a traditional bastion of conservatism. Matters came to a head in 462 BC, though, not long after Cimon's return from Thassos. Since Cimon was in charge of what many Greeks had thought was an illegitimate Thassian expedition, and his colony of Henio Hodoi had been destroyed, his enemies took advantage of Athenian discontent against his recent policies and attacked him politically when he returned. Not surprising, his main enemy was Ephialtes, who was assisted by a young Pericles, the son of Xanthippus. Despite his reputation for incorruptibility, they claimed that Cimon didn't win the war against Thassos quickly because he had been bribed by the Macedonian king Alexander not to use his base in the north to invade Macedon. However, Cimon had no intent to conquer Macedon, and he was already enormously rich from war booty, so he would have had no reason to take bribe money. According to Plutarch, he even said, quote, Never have I been an Athenian envoy to any rich kingdom. Instead, I was proud, attending to the Spartans, whose frugal culture I have always imitated. This proves that I don't desire personal wealth. Rather, I love enriching our nation with the booty of our victories. End quote. Obviously, the charges brought against him were absurd, and Cimon's highly influential sister, Elpeniki, negotiated his acquittal with Pericles, who was one of the prosecutors on the case. Regardless, the trial showed the growing confidence of the Hawk faction, and was the first time we see one of its prominent members, the young Pericles, on the political scene, and over time, he would grow to become the most distinguished statesman of classical Athens. Although they failed, the Hawks had challenged Cimon and proved that he was fallible, and it wouldn't take long for them to challenge his authority once again. In 462 BC, after three unsuccessful years, the Spartans finally swallowed their pride and sought help from Athens, who still didn't know about their planned invasion of Attica against them for help with the helots on Mount Ithome, because of the Athenians' supposed expertise in siege warfare, which the Spartans did not have. This request touched off a vigorous debate in the Ecclesia, 
According to Plutarch, the Democratic anti-Spartan Ephialtes spoke out against aid and for them to, quote, let haughty Sparta be trampled by its own pride, end quote. He argued that Sparta and Athens were natural rivals and that Athens should rejoice at Sparta's misfortune rather than help them recover. But the strongly pro-Spartan Chimon defended the Athenian-Spartan alliance and urged the Athenians not to abandon their former allies and let Athens, quote, be robbed of its yoke fellow, end quote. Chimon's proposal ultimately won the day, and so they voted to send 4,000 hoplites to their aid, led by Chimon himself. But Chimon would soon find out that his Spartan friends would let him down. After he and his troops arrived, since the Athenian hoplites that made up the bulk of the force were from the well-to-do section of Athenian society, they were nevertheless openly shocked to discover that the rebel helots were Greeks like themselves. Thucydides reports that there was something about the way the Athenian soldiers conducted themselves that sparked panic in the conservative and fundamentally xenophobic Spartans that they had come to help. So the Spartans immediately ordered the Athenians to go back home. The kicker, though, is that no other Greeks were relieved as well, only the Athenians. Thucydides says that the Spartans began to grow increasingly nervous of Athenian soldiers being in the Peloponnese because they possessed a revolutionary spirit and might switch sides to help the Helots take down the Spartans. The official justification, though, was that since the initial assault on Mount Ithome had failed, what was now required was a blockade, a task the Spartans did not need Athenian help with. As you might expect, the Athenian hawk saw their moment to strike, and this insulting snub caused the collapse of Chimon's popularity. To many Athenians, this incident exposed the futility of making sacrifices to court Sparta's friendship, and to the historian, it reveals the depth of Spartan jealousy and worry about the upstart Athenians. As a result, for 461 BC, the pro-Spartan Chimon was ostracized, putting an end to conservatism in the state. Many ostraca bearing Chimon's name have survived as well. The Athenians, though, didn't stop there. The hawks took advantage of the Athenian people's angry mood and persuaded them to officially renounce their old alliance with Sparta. This not only marked the end of the Hellenic League, but was a virtual declaration of war. To make matters worse, they then made a military alliance with Sparta's most bitter rival, Argos as well as with the previously pro-Persian Thessalians, probably just to secure their famous cavalry in the case of war with Sparta. But they also would act as a counterweight to the power of Poetia with its pro-Spartan sympathies. All of this was no doubt done as a calculated risk, hoping to goad the Spartans into open warfare. In his histories, Herodotus also mentions in passing that an Athenian embassy, headed by Callias, the brother-in-law of Chimon, was sent to Susa to negotiate peace terms with Artaxerxes. Plutarch also suggests that in the aftermath of the victory at the Eurymedon, Artaxerxes had agreed to a peace treaty with the Greeks, even naming Callias as the Athenian ambassador involved. But he doesn't mention when this happened, and since this embassy included some Argive representatives, it thus probably could be dated to after the alliance between Athens and Argos was forged. We will discuss next episode another possible time that peace may or may not have been agreed upon, as all the ancient sources did not align on any of this. But if any of this were true though, this would all imply that the Athenians were looking to end war with Persia, and focus more towards Sparta. Because it is a fundamental tenet of war strategy that war on two fronts should be avoided at all costs though it's not sure why the brother-in-law of the recently ostracized Chimon would have been tasked with overseeing the peace negotiations. Apparently, he was an avid supporter of Pericles and was a distinguished statesman and diplomat. It has also been suggested that these hypothetical peace negotiations failed and thus led to the Athenian decision to support the Egyptian revolt, because where diplomacy fails, military force is often used to persuade an opponent to return to the negotiating table. We will discuss this event in the next episode, too. If the Spartans were alarmed by the Athenians' innovative and forward-looking ways of construing the world, they did a terrible job of containing it. Thanks to their actions and Chimon's ostracism, this left an open highway for Ephialtes and his Athenian hawk associates. 
The disgrace brought upon Kaimon carried over to the elite in general, thereby establishing a political climate ripe for further democratic reforms. And so many historians like to mark the end of Kaimon's ascendancy as the beginning of Athenian radical democracy, for which Athens would become famous. Ironically, the naval ascendancy that Kaimon had done so much to develop would play a large role in fostering the democratic reforms that he had opposed. Kaimon seems to have supported a moderate hoplite democracy, meaning government by those who could afford to provide their own weapons and armor. The success of his naval operations, however, underlined the increasing importance to the state of the men who rode the triremes, those being either moderately poor or even destitute, a development that served to undermine the old-fashioned system of power following property and contributed to its replacement by a more broadly-based form of government. And so, Ephialtes was able to seize on the discrediting of Cimon's policies to pass some significant democratic reforms. Though the details remain obscure, we know in a general sense that he substantially diminished the power and prestige of the ancient council of the Areopagus. Time had already done some of his work for him, though. Since the Areopagus consisted of ex-archons, it had been growing less and less aristocratic with each year that had passed since the Athenians had started selecting archons by lot. Its members, however, held power for life, and the newer and poorer Areopagites may well have been co-opted into the value system of their aristocratic elders. Regardless, almost everything about this institution was undemocratic in the sense that membership was for life and was confined to ex-archons only. Moreover, this institution had wide-ranging powers, and even more disturbing to the radical Democrats was that it was unaccountable as a body for the exercise of these powers. After all, one of the pillars of democracy is that no public official or public institution should be above the law, but must be accountable to the people for its actions. However, Ephialtes decided that an immediate direct assault upon the Areopagus would not yield his desired result, so he needed to take a more nuanced approach. According to Aristotle, Ephialtes first began to prosecute certain Areopagites for maladministration. This was successful and helped to create a mood of distrust among the ordinary Athenians. All of this was done prior to Cimon's ostracism, but with the removal of the great conservative statesmen and having already weakened the prestige of many of its individuals, Ephialtes was able to then propose a sweeping series of reforms to weaken it as a whole. And so, at the instigation of Ephialtes, the Ecclesia began to pass a series of measures stripping the Areopagus of all of its authority, except jurisdiction and homicide cases, and matters of a religious nature, and giving it to the people, effectively abolishing it as a political force. The fact that such an august, ancient and powerful institution could fall so easily and so totally from political power marks the remarkable change in the people's attitudes and confidence. Cleisthenes' reforms had given the people the means to gain political experience, both in the deems at the local level and in the ecclesia at the national level. They had matured politically and had grown used to direct power and involvement in the political process. Therefore, the position of the undemocratic Areopagus looked completely out of date in such a progressive-looking state, and thus its central role in Athenian politics had to be removed. The proof that the Athenians were ready to govern themselves was that no new major institutions were created to take over for the Areopagus. These powers were simply transferred to the boule, the ecclesia, and the popular law courts known as the Heliaii, all three of which were controlled by the Athenian people. Accountability was the main theme of Ephialtes' reforms, and so he was determined to make all public officials accountable to the Athenian people. Although the evidence is thin, it seems that the dokamasia, or the examination of public officials to see whether they were capable to take up their post, had been in two stages for the archons selected by Lot. First before the Areopagus, and subsequently before the Heliaii. According to Aristotle, Ephialtes removed this power from the Areopagus, and gave the first stage of the dokamasia to the boule. He also ensured that all other public officials underwent their dokamasia before the Heliaii, except for the boule, which was examined by the outgoing boule, as was previously laid down by Cleisthenes. Second, the right to hear complaints against public officials for misconduct during their year of office 
was taken from the Areopagus and given to the Boule, which now had the authority to try the official and to impose a fine up to a maximum of 500 drachmas. If the penalty for the crime was greater than this sum, the Boule had to pass the case onto the Heliai. Clearly, Ephialtes was determined that the people should have ultimate control on all serious cases. Third, because Ephialtes had realized that the Athuna, or the investigation at the end of an official's year in office, to see whether he had acted in accordance with the law, had to be rigorous in order to root out misconduct in office. He established the principle that there would be a compulsory Athuna for every political official, whether there was a complaint or not, and that it would be conducted by a panel of ten Athunoi, or public auditors, chosen by and from the Boule. In addition, it was probably Ephialtes who added the 30 Logistai, or public accountants, whose task it was to investigate the accounts of all public officials who handled public funds. Through these measures, Ephialtes wrestled away control of the public offices from an aristocratic body and gave it to the institutions controlled by the people. The second power of the Areopagus was its supervision of the city's affairs with the power to punish without giving reasons. This gave them extensive control over the private lives of the Athenian people. The 4th century BC rhetorician, Isocrates, writes, quote, Our ancestors kept watch over the lives of every citizen, dragging the disorderly before the Areopagus, which criticized, threatened, or punished them as they deserved. End quote. Such an intrusion into the private affairs of an increasingly radical community would have caused great resentment. To make matters worse, there was a lack of accountability also present in the exercise of this power. The essence of justice is that it should be done, and be seen to be done, which was manifestly lacking when the reasons for the imposition of punishments could be ignored. After Ephialtes' reforms, though, no other institution was given such all-pervading powers, and it was left to the responsibility of the individual Athenian to bring such matters to the Heliai. The third and final power of the Areopagus was that it held preliminary trials for those who conspired to overthrow the government, meaning tyranny, or committed treason or crimes against the state, in which the penalty was death or a very heavy punishment, such as exile or loss of citizenship rights. If a citizen was accused on such a charge, he would be impeached before the Areopagus. If they established that there was a case to answer, then the accused was brought before the Heliae for a final trial and verdict. Ephialtes, though, removed this preliminary stage from the Areopagus and gave it to the Boule. Any citizen could bring a charge of a crime against the state before the Boule, which would then investigate the matter. If it decided that there was a case to answer, it would conduct the trial and, in the case of guilt, would impose a fine up to a maximum of 500 drachmas. If the case was more serious with a greater penalty involved, then the Boule referred to the Hilai for trial and judgment. Some historians have argued that Cimon and his hoplites were still in the Peloponnese at the time of Ephialtes' proposals, while others have argued that the proposals followed Cimon's return. Those who placed the proposals during Cimon's absence suggest that he attempted to overturn them on his return, while those who believe he was present at the proposals believe that he opposed them in the initial debate. All agree, though, that his resistance was doomed to failure by the fact that his hoplite force had just been rudely dismissed by the Spartans, an action which demolished the political standing of Cimon and other pro-Spartan conservative Athenian doves. If this was the case, then the success of Ephialtes' reforms was followed by the ostracism of Cimon, regardless of the order that it happened. At the beginning of 461 BC, Ephialtes and his faction were firmly in control of the state, after having rid themselves of Cimon and having diminished significantly the power and prestige of the Areopagus. Ephialtes, however, would not live to participate in this new form of government for long. Shortly after these reforms were enacted, Ephialtes was assassinated with a knife. It is not recorded by whom, but it was probably by a disgruntled aristocrat who was angry at the democratic turn of events. After all, he had gained many bitter foes, among the Areopagites, whom he lambasted often and publicly, and there were perhaps some among them who would not have hesitated to take such vengeance on their assailant. As one would expect, rumors swirled much later on that it was actually Pericles who had killed his ally. Some scholars agree with this, 
They reasoned that had Ifialti's been murdered by someone outside the radical faction, those in his faction surely would have made him a martyr and led a crusade to find the perpetrator. This didn't happen though, so the murderer likely came from within Ifialti's own faction, either being Pericles or some other Athenian hawk. Regardless of who was the murderer, this remarkably was the only political assassination in the entire history of the Athenian democracy. And so with Ephialtes' death, the task of leading the democratic movement at Athens fell to his young associate Pericles, an Alcmeonidae on his father's side. And without opposition after the ostracism of Cimon, the new leader of the democratic faction became the unchallengeable ruler of Athens. He would rise to the occasion and ultimately became the dominant politician and guiding hand of Athens, as the tension between Sparta and Athens continued to heat up until it exploded into outright warfare. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 42, The Undeclared War. If you haven't done so yet, please head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. It would help the podcast grow immensely. Also, while you're there, subscribe to the show so it comes in your phone or listening device every week. If you don't have iTunes, you can catch the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play. Also, make sure you're checking out the website at thehistoryofancientgreece.com, where I've posted a lot of neat supplementary photos, maps, and charts for each episode. Finally, now that the show has gained some traction, I decided to create a Patreon page in case anyone felt inclined to contribute to the creation of the History of Ancient Greece podcast. There is a link on the right-hand side of the website. But don't worry, the podcast will still remain free regardless, but it is an expensive endeavor to create a podcast after all, with the cost of website hosting and the purchasing of equipment and the time and effort required to research, write, record, and edit a show. So if you're feeling generous, consider supporting the show by making a monthly donation. If you'd rather just do a one-time donation, there is also a PayPal link on the right-hand side of the website. Just click on the Donate button. Patreon allows you to pledge money, either for every episode or per month. It can be as little as a dollar a month if you please. That amounts to a can of soda or a cup of tea or coffee a month. And while it may seem insignificant, if many people pledge that amount, it can really add up quickly. Either way, I would be eternally grateful. Speaking of which... I would like to give a huge thanks to listener Al Ozanoff, Andrea Peterson, Patrick G., and Alex for their pledges. I cannot tell you enough how thankful I am for your support. And once again, thanks to everyone else for your continued support in making this podcast. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Mm-hmm.